It might be easy to forget, but the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words, were given to a people who were in the line, described in that last line, bound for the promised land. What would it be like to have no sight? What would it be like to not be able to see? To not be able to distinguish forms, shapes, and shadows? What if you were Fanny Crosby or Stevie Wonder or maybe the great Italian tenor Andrea Bocelli? What if your whole world, your whole world, was invisible to you. That you could not see the orange red on an exit sign or the blue of sanctuary seats or the green of even artificial plants around a pulpit. If so, you'd have to completely rely upon sight, I mean on sound and touch, taste and smell. Have you ever thought that in his word, God tells us that he's invisible? Not merely unseen, but he's invisible. If I hid in a coat closet, then for that moment, I am unseen. But that's not the same as being invisible. You see, God cannot be seen like the normal world all around us. You and I can notice color, texture, size, shape, distance, and even the depth of someone or something, the idea of seeing something not simply in two dimensions, but three. We have also this ability to detect if that same thing is stationary or moving. Most of us have the ability to see all this, even if we're aided by glasses or contacts. But God is unseen. Now, now God is unseen. Many of the children know the catechism question that asks this, can you see God? That's right. No, but he always sees me. Think about this. You're hiding in a coat closet, but God is more. You're unseen. God is more. He's invisible. Did you know that Paul exalts the invisibility of God? In 1 Timothy 1, verse 17, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. In this doxology of benediction, Paul actually connects us to the first two commandments. If you weren't here last Sunday night, we studied the very first commandment. You shall have no other gods before or besides me. I like the idea of before because of the preposition there. It's the idea of being right in front of something. It's present in front of you. It's before you. He is the one true God, the only God. 
He is exclusively the one true God, and he's truly one God. You see the distinction. We may say it this way, he is indivisible. He is one. In the great Shema of Deuteronomy chapter 6, in verses 4 and following, Moses speaks this truth of the indivisibility of God as expressed there in the first commandment. He speaks it to the people of Israel and he gives its natural and immediate application. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your might. In other words, with every particle of what makes you, you. And he adds, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. That's the first commandment in review. But today, our subject is the second commandment of the ten commandments, or what we may rightfully call the ten words. You might see we've abbreviated it in the bulletin. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. You might know in my sermon title that I borrowed from the King James Version. I thought we'd just pull back about 411 years and grab that word graven. You should not make for yourself a graven image, which is really just the first line of the commandment from Exodus 20 and verse 4. And by way of review from last night, because we're building on this each week as we think about law as a portion of Scripture, the moral law, and understanding it within the whole of the Bible, Genesis through Revelation. And so there's going to be a bit of review here. These 10 words, as Brother Wesley alluded to earlier, were spoken by Yahweh, the Lord your God. Yes, that phrase mentioned four times throughout the 10 commandments. Spoken there at Mount Sinai, Though you'll see in Deuteronomy 4, not to confuse you, Horeb, H-O-R-E-B, and then engraved by his very finger on two tablets. And though we don't know how the commandments were divided on those two tablets, traditionally we may speak of the two tablets of the law, the moral law, as distinct from ceremonial or civil, and we speak of that first tablet containing the first four commandments. They are vertical in nature. They speak directly to our relationship to God. They formulate the obedience that God requires of us in relationship to him, right? And those are the ones that that Wesley read earlier from the first 11 verses of our text. They're also repeated, they're given a second time, roughly four decades later in Deuteronomy 5, verses 6 through 15. What about the second tablet? So, two tablets, ten words, 
10 laws, the first tablet with four words or four commandments that are vertical in nature. They deal directly with our relationship with God. The second tablet with the final six commandments deal horizontally. They're horizontal in nature. They speak directly to our relationship with our neighbor. They express the obedience that God requires of us in relationship to everyone around us. We find those in verses 12 through 17 of Exodus 20 and then repeated again in Deuteronomy chapter 5. And these 10 words are the expanded summary of those, the two great commandments that are intertwined with love. It's all about this royal law of love. And we see this in Deuteronomy 6, 4. You shall love the Lord your God, there's that phrase again, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And then from Leviticus 19 and verse 18, we're not only not to bear a grudge, but we read these words in the middle of verse 18 of Leviticus 19 of verse 18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then it's punctuated with, I am the Lord. In other words, the law is given in a context, in a covenantal context, a context of relationship. And that's what we saw last week in the prologue of the 10 words in Exodus 20, verses 1 through 2. And we don't want to miss this. That grace precedes law. All right? Grace precedes law. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I've redeemed you, and now this is what your redeemed life is to look like. It's not do this and I'll redeem you. It's I've redeemed you, and now this is the pattern, the template for what a holy life with the full-fledged, the the expressing of loving God with all our heart, our soul, and our might looks like and loving our neighbor as ourselves. Now, kids... Let me have your attention just for a moment. When you think of the 10 words, the 10 commandments, I want you to think about three purposes that God has given his law to us and to you. So the law is a gift. In fact, Wednesday night, we read during our, before our prayer time, 22 of us each read eight verses of Psalm 119, and it's Psalm 119 as the longest chapter in all the Bible, with the mo- that is, the ch- with the most verses, that celebrates all of God's law, his words, his statutes, his ordinances, his promises, his commandments. But kids, I would like you to note real quickly as we're thinking about God giving us law, things we are to do and things we aren't to do, three things that are true about God's law. And moms and dads, begin to discuss this as a family. Make this practical. First of all, God's law tells us about himself. 
in his word, in his law, he reveals something and much about his very character. In fact, today in the second commandment, we'll see that God is a what type of God? A jealous God. There's a second thing that the law teaches us, a a way we benefit from the law, and that's it. It's our only rule. It's through the law that God directs us how we are to live. Law in the commandments are not simply like a policy and procedure manual that you get at work that no one looks at, no one reads, and it collects dust, and no one knows it anyways. That makes sense. They're to be lived out. So the law reveals the character of God. The law gives us a template for living, but that there's a third purpose of the law. And the law is to show you how much you need all that Jesus Christ accomplished for his people and can and for you if you'll but have faith in him. There are more when we think of the uses of the law, but for the moment these three things are helpful in a basic instruction on what are the benefits, what are the uses of the law to reveal God to us, to give us a template for life and our obedience that's pleasing to God, but thirdly, to show us our need for a Savior. As Paul says in the book of Galatians, to serve as a tutor for Christ. Now, as you look at the Ten Commandments, I think most of us know this. By way of review, eight of these commandments are in the negative, what we call prohibitions, as in you shall not. Last Sunday night, we pointed out that when you see that, eight of the ten, you shall not, except for the fourth, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, and the fifth, honor your father and your mother. When you read, you shall not, this is not you all shall not, but it's you shall not. It's in the singular. It's like me, you saying to me, Mark, uh, you shall never talk to me that way again. It'd be something like that, okay? It's singular. It's, it's God. It's to be received and understood that there's personal application here. And these prohibitions, any commandment that begins with the words, you shall not, they're expressed in the strongest way to forbid or discourage an action. And kids, you know in your family there are certain buzzwords, certain expressions. When mom or dad says this, that means that's the last word. Like, don't go an inch further. It's like, you better not do that again. And some of you kids, you can get that look from your dad or mom. It means, I'm not messing around. Don't try my patience. There's a force to it. And that's the idea here grammatically in the the language. But Yahweh here is drawing a good a holy, but an uncrossable series of 10 parallel lines of commandments for us. And as the psalmist says in Psalm 119, his commandments are exceedingly what? Broad. Broad. So as an application, kids, children, let me tell you, don't look at God's word And say, God is like the ultimate 
buzz killer. He just wants me to be unhappy, stay in my lane, and, and never get myself in any trouble. No, his law is good. We looked at this even last Sunday night from Psalm 19 that celebrates both the word and the works of God. The psalmist says, David says, your law is perfect. It revives the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And look at this. He says, more valuable than gold, sweeter than honey. He says, moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. And beyond what is forbidden in these eight of these ten commandments, we can imply the things that are required. And so we come to this commandment. And I want to make this really, really simple for us and not keep this complicated one just one of ten words. And I want us to see in the second commandment uh, just four aspects here. So here, if you're taking notes, I want to give you a simple outline. So you can think of it this way. The second commandment, number one, is the essence of it. If you're putting one word, put the word essence. When you boil it all down, here it is. Number two is the truth behind it. So the essence of it, number two, the truth behind it. Number three, the character of God that shapes it. And then finally, the warning that sobers us. All right? Now, I, so there's the four points, but I want so that you can listen more without feeling like you've got to scribble down too much. I want to make it this way. The essence of it is right there in the first line. And it's, it is reflexive. You shall not, it's not simply you shall not make a carved image, but it's you shall not make, and then in brackets, in the Hebrew, for yourself. You can say graven image. And then as you think about it, there's three aspects. Don't make them, don't worship them, don't serve them. If you're using an acronym, acronym, make it MSW. Don't make them, don't serve them, don't worship them. And I want you to attach, if you're thinking about this, you go back and think about this this week in terms of application Take the passage that Wesley read, Deuteronomy 4, verses 15 through 24, as part of the exposition of the second commandment. There's expanded language in there. In effect, Exodus 20, verses 4 through 6, is its summary. It's expanded in Deuteronomy 4, four decades later. The essence of it, no making, worshiping, or serving carved images. 
That's the essence. The truth, and then we're going to go back and fill this in. The truth behind the second commandment is the invisibility of God. The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me or besides me. What's there is the indivisibility of God. There is one true God, and truly God is what? One. And then third, the character of God that shapes it is the legitimate jealousy of God. For you and I to be described as a jealous person is what? It's not a compliment. But God, with no apologies, says he is a jealous God. Because all worship is owed only to him. And it's owed only as he prescribes it. He sets the password of his worship. He does it. And then the fourth is the warning that sobers us. It's this difficult and sobering ending to the second commandment that begins there in verse 5 where it says, He's visiting, the Lord your God is a jealous God, is visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. There it is. The essence of it, the truth behind it, that is his invisibility. Third, the character of God that shapes it that he is a jealous God, and then fourthly, the warning that sobers us, and that is that God does not play, that connected with actions are consequences. Now, praise God, as we're sobered when we see, as we'll look at this fourth point, we know that grace, that grace is always greater than sin, and ultimately grace will triumph. Over sin, And so that will encourage us as we come to the end. Well, first, as we consider the second commandment, I want us to see the essence of it. And the essence of it here, he says, you don't take things in the natural realm and put your hands to them. And that word there, asah, for make is the same, one of the same verbs that we see that describe the creative enterprise of God in the first two chapters of Genesis. God made us in his own image and likeness. And you'll notice in verse 4, you see both those words, image and likeness. And so as we consider the essence of this second commandment, what is it? It is a prohibition, it is a not allowed, okay, not allowed word that says we, with our own hands in the visible realm, are not to manufacture or create and then serve and worship out of or a a replica of anything in the created realm so that we might serve it or worship it. 
And I want you to think about this, how natural, how this makes sense. When you understand that God was not seen. And this is when he gives these 10 words. He's never seen. And we'll come to that in a moment behind the truth of it. That's the truth that undergirds this commandment. We are those who've been made in the image and likeness of God. And so forbidden from that is that we make things that we replicate the image of likeness or likeness of created things. Not, we're, we're not prohibiting the enjoyment of those things. But what's prohibited here is the making of those things for the purpose of worshiping and serving them, of bowing down to serve them. You'll notice how that's split. There's, there's three elements here. You shall not make for yourself in the first line of verse 4. But it's verse 5. It says, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. Okay? Now, I do not think if you're driving up in North Carolina and there's a gift shop and you see a carved wooden black bear at the entrance to the shop, okay? Or if I drive up to your home and you have out of concrete a pineapple that says, welcome. That's not what's being forbidden here. Are we clear? All right, we're clear. But the making of those things that we might bow down to them and serve them is strictly prohibited. Turn, if you will, to Exodus or to Deuteronomy 4 for a moment to see where Wesley read how that's expanded. And the language there is, he says, beware lest you act corruptly. So to do this is a virtual act of corruption. And he says, don't make an image, the likeness of male, of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal on the earth, the likeness of any bird that flies in the air, anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish in the water under the earth. Don't even do this with what's in the galaxies, what's in the skies, in heaven above. Recognize that your heart, as we heard in Sunday school this morning, is an idle factory. That you and I are designed for worship, but as fallen creatures this side of Genesis 3, we pervert what God has made good. Whether it's sex or power, or money, or work, or knowledge, or government, any of those things, recreation, we take God's gifts and we pervert them. We either, we either have the wrong motive, we have the wrong prescription, or we have the wrong end as far as the glory of God. And so when you read there in Deuteronomy 4 and you see all these things, what undergird in this in the very essence of it is everything's forbidden. And that's why Paul then says in Romans in chapter one that part of what God gave humanity over and what God's wrath is revealed against is, is against mankind in Romans one, verse twenty one, that though they knew God, they did not honor him 
or give thanks to him, they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. In claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And in judgment, God gives them over to such foolishness. The essence of the commandment. Do not with your own hands for yourself manufacture, serve as in bow down or worship in image or likeness of anything in the created realm, whether it's animals or planets, that you might worship God and it worship them rather than God. And it points out an important thing about worship, what we call even the regulatory principle of worship, that God regulates our worship. God tells us that both he tells us what those elements of worship that are acceptable to him. The word and prayer and the ordinances of the Lord's Supper and baptism. These things, all right. Even the way our songs are to bring praises to God, to magnify him, to exalt his character, his works, and his word. But behind this is a truth, and that's the invisibility of God. In John 4, Jesus meets the Samaritan woman at the well. And he says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth, John 4, 24. A few chapters later, or actually earlier in, in the, uh, the prologue of John's Gospel in John chapter 1, in verse 18, John says this No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. He has made Him known, this one who has never been seen. And Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 15 and 16, he speaks of the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Amen. Have you ever thought of one reason we close our eyes when we pray? Because when we pray, it's not to say it's illegitimate to pray with your eyes open. Sometimes Cheryl and I will be driving down the road and I'm like, let's pray. And so as I'm driving, you know I pray with my eyes wide open. Okay. But when we pray, in that moment where as God speaks to us through his word and we speak to him through prayer, we recognize that we are praying to this one who no one has ever seen, John 1, 18. We pray to this one who desires spirit or worship in spirit and in truth, John four twenty four. We are praying to this one of whom Paul writes as the one who has, no one has ever seen or can see. 
And we were praying to the one who that same, that same old Apostle John writes in John, 1 John 4, verses 11 through 12, as he writes of God loving us. He says, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. And eight verses later, he'll actually apply the invisibility of God to say this. If we do not love our brothers and sisters whom we can see with our own eyes, how is it possible that we can love God whom we have not nor cannot see? It's an application, if you will, even of the second commandment there in terms of an implication of worshiping the invisible God. We've seen the essence of the second commandment. We've seen the truth behind it. I want us to see now this character of God that shapes it. The little word for is so important that you see there in Exodus 20, halfway through verse five, where he says, the second part of the three things you shall not make, you shall not bow down, you shall not serve them. He says, for or because I And you'll notice this. He doesn't simply say, the Lord your God. He's putting them himself as God right in front of them. He says, you know me. And now I'm going to tell you about me. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. This is not an apology. This is an explanation. God is not apologizing. We have every ground to apologize when we have an unholy jealousy. I think there's a legitimate jealousy we can have for God's truth, for the welfare of others, for God's glory. But here there's no apology when God says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. In fact, turn with me to Exodus 34, just a few pages to the right there, if you're using a pew Bible, page 74. Most of us, when we think of the names of God, do not think of the name Jealous. Did you know that one of God's names is Jealous? And he gives that to himself. Exodus 34 Let's begin at verse 13. You shall tear down their altars, speaking of all those nations that they will drive out when they enter the promised land. And you shall cut down their ashram, for you shall worship no other God. Well, that sounds familiar, like the first commandment. For the Lord, whose name is jealous, is a jealous God. And why did you need why did you need to deal dramatically, decisively with these idols, with these pillars, with these false gods, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land? Because I made a covenant with you. And when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of this sacrifice. You eat of his sacrifice, and you take of their daughters for your God. 
for your sons and their daughters whore after their gods and make your sons whore after their gods. Men and women, boys and girls, let us acknowledge that our heart is inclined to idolize and make more important others and other things than the Lord who has said, you shall have no other gods before me. And it's this characteristic of this quality of God that he is jealous for his own worship. He's jealous for the hearts of his own people that shapes the second commandment. Well, finally, there's a warning that sobers us. If you'll turn back to Exodus 20, beginning with that word, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Some of you might be tempted to think, even some of you dads, by your own sin or by the sin of your own fathers or maybe grandfathers or great-grandfathers to think, I'm doomed. Here it is in black and white. This jealous God has said in his own word, he's visiting the iniquity as though he's paying forward the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, and I'm doomed. I'm doomed to repeat the sin of my father, or if I'm a father, my children and grandchildren are doomed to repeat, to be enslaved by, to be ensnared, to be tripped up by my own patterns of besetting sin. And from this, I think we must be sobered. We must be sobered. Let's not gloss over it. To recognize, and, and I appeal brothers, men, and I think by application, there's the same to women. As we read in Proverbs 14, that the foolish woman tears down her own house with her hands. Let's be reminded what's at stake by our words. By our actions, let's not underestimate either the power to influence, the power to wreck shalom in our families by our sins, but also the power of grace, as we'll see in the latter part of the verse, so that we not simply think there's no hope. And so for some of you, if you know distinctly the history, the sin history in your family, do not believe that you are bound by that. Don't, and don't use this as an excuse. Well, my dad was an angry man, and so that explains and excuses me for my anger. Does that make sense? You tracking with me? 
We're not punished. We're not accountable for the sins of our fathers. There's a distinction between our lives being impacted and that part of our story and us bearing the iniquity of the sins of our father. And I want us to see, to encourage our hearts as we think about this very sober warning though, the encouraging beauty and grace and how grace not only precedes, ultimately grace precedes law, but grace exceeds law and grace exceeds sin and grace exceeds the sin that precedes our lives. Ultimately, it rules. Grace is greater than our sin. Look at these words. Look at this juxtaposition. Kids, what's, what's a greater number, 1,000 or three? What's bigger? There it is. We're not comparing, like, these are eight to six odds here. This is 1,000 to three or four. Those are pretty good numbers in my mind. Okay, all right? Could you imagine that if today you went fishing and you knew that you had, if you fished in this lake versus that lake, you would have a 1,000 a percent better chances or 250 times or 300 times the chances of the amount of fish you would catch in this lake. I know where I'd fish. I'd fish here. Look at these numbers. He's saying to show the size, the power, the influence of the iniquity of the fathers. He says, third and fourth generation, three or fourth. Go like that. Just go like that. Now close it. But now take your hands and do this a hundred times. That's a thousand. If you do that a hundred times, that's a thousand. Yes, the visitation on the iniquity of the fathers is three and four generations. The Israelites understood this. They were 400 years in Egypt. They were 40 years in the wilderness, maybe a generation and a half, maybe 10, 12 generations in Egypt. But he says, look. Let me show you something about me. The invisible, indivisible God who's jealous for his worship. Yes, I don't play. I don't play with sin because I'm jealous for my worship, I'm jealous for your hearts. But I show my steadfast love, my covenant loyalty to a thousands. Maybe it's a thousands, but why don't we look at it even a thousand generations of those who love me and to keep my commandments. Kids, you know today God is one we cannot see. He's invisible. He's immortal. He's the only wise God. But I want to encourage us as we think about these 10 words and this second word in particular that 
You shall not make for yourself any graven images. Can you see God? No, but he always sees me. And when you think about the three uses of the law, that they reveal God's character, they show us the way of obedience, and thirdly, they reveal our need for Christ. I want to close with us thinking about the beauty then of what John writes in the prologue to his first letter in 1 John chapter 1. Though we cannot see God in the sense that he is spirit, yet his son became flesh. He took on his, he took upon himself a nature that he did not have from the beginning, right? He says, he became what he, he became what he never was without losing what he always had been. The second person of the Trinity took on this human flesh, but without the sinful dimension of it. And so John says, that which is from the beginning, which we have heard, And he says, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon, we've touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest. We've seen it. We're witnesses. We testify to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That also to you so that we you too may have fellowship with us. And and indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. No, you cannot see God. And that's the truth behind this second commandment, that we not worship things, whether it's a carved statue, whether it's a picture of LeBron James on on a poster, Whether it's someone that you follow on Instagram who thinks you, who you think is so cool, so beautiful, who has the life you think you'll never have, and you worship him or her. We've seen this morning the essence of the commandment, the truth behind it, the character of God, his jealousy that shapes us in this warning. But let's not miss the grace of the God who says, I show steadfast love I show for your seeing though you cannot see me I show steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments and that steadfast love is shown in no greater way than the son who John says we see And who has a glorified body now, even as he sits in the heavenly places in power and authority. And he prays for you. And he prays for me. And yes, maybe there's that scar from the spear in his side. And there's those scars in his hands. And it's this one. the son who can be seen, who makes him known.
to him. Let's look with faith. Let's look with hope this morning. Amen.